This year in Epiphany, we've been doing this study in the, Paul's letter to the Philippians and looking at how Christ is revealed to us in this letter. And this morning in our readings, we see that Paul uses this term, the surpassing worth to Paul of the revelation of Christ to him. And so as we come to this paragraph in Philippians, we are in really deep, really heartfelt, really gut-level territory. We might say today something like, you know, Paul's keeping it real, that this is his genuine heart and mind. Now, just to help us get into this, I think we sometimes misunderstand or misread Paul to be saying something like, well, I used to be a Jew, and of course that would mean you know, based on works of the law. But now I've got a better religion that's totally disconnected from all that. I think that's the way we often read Paul. And that is a very errant way, I would humbly suggest, to read him. A way better way to read him is something like this. Christ is not the rejection of my Jewish past, but the fulfillment of it. In fact, the word Messiah precisely means the fulfillment of all that God intended for his people. And that when we are in Christ, as Paul talks about this morning, being in the Messiah, it means precisely we're in on the fulfillment of everything that God intended when he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and you are going to be kind of my cosmic rescue force. You're going to be the agents of good on the earth. You're going to be, in the New Testament terms, ambassador of the kingdom. We might say something like, you're going to be my cooperative friends. And so for Paul, this isn't a dismissing of his past. It's an embracing of Christ as this surprising fulfillment of God doing in space and time what he had promised to do, and that it had come bizarrely through arrest and mock trial and crucifixion, but then resurrection, and so this must be true. So far better to read Paul this morning in light of what you read last week when I wasn't here. I was in L.A. at one of our church plants. It was just so fantastic. They're doing a great job. You'd be so proud of them. Uh, But I know you read last week in chapter 2 these words, and I think this is a better way to think about how Paul pictures himself reacting to the revelation of Christ, saying that Jesus is my model. Last week you would have read these words, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I want you to hear that word again. Who being in the very nature God did not consider, because if you'll notice, if you look at your text this morning in Philippians, that Paul uses that very same term, consider, about himself. And so you don't see here again a rejection. You see a continuity that says Jesus is my model for what it means to be in continuity with what God had always intended to do for humanity. So if you look at verses four through six, we see something here like a theological biography. And it's, it's as if Paul's saying something like, think about my story a bit and see how my story might challenge your assumptions about religion. So then he starts in. And of course, he is challenging all the assumptions around him in his Jewish world about religion. He says, verse four, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, by confident in the flesh, Paul means something like you see on ads today for um, 23andMe, 
you know, or Ancestry.com, you know, those ads that are all over the place now sort of showing what your true lineage is. This is what Paul has in mind because in Paul's day, it was thought that superior ethnicity and superior ancestry was significant. And so Paul lists his, you can see in verse five. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That means I'm a true covenantal Jew. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And, and that simply is a way of saying that Benjamin was the most highly respected, highly lifted up of all the 12 Israel tribes. So it was the best tribe to have been from. Where he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, it's something like, I was raised in an Italian family speaking Italian. Or I was raised in a Japanese family speaking the mother tongue. And again, that would have been a very big thing. To be able to speak the old mother tongue was a real badge of honor. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. That is to say, I was an ethical rigorist. And I was trying to do everything I possibly could to express the religion of my ancestors. Verse 6, he says, as for zeal, that word uh, for zeal of a Greek-speaking person would have heard that. Uh, they would have immediately thought of a sword or a dagger. And so he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, that is to say, covenantal adherence, like adhering to that which God was making his people for, flawless, faultless. If I was held before a law court, I would have been said to be in the right, to have been innocent. But now he turns, and in verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, I now, just think about that word now for a minute. What's that referred to? But whatever were gains to me, I now, which is to say something like, after my conversion, and now notice this next word, consider. In the same way Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, so I don't consider the things that were gained for me, that, were, that should have been gains, that in all of sort of popular normal culture would have been thought to be gains. Now, like Christ, I consider them all as loss for the sake of Christ. Loss for Paul meaning something like a death to self that brought a rising with Christ. It, it's, it's counterintuitive that death can lead to life. But I, I think maybe it's something like this. Before and during World War II when people were hauled off to the gulags, you know, often their houses were ransacked and certainly all their possessions were taken away. And as they were marched out of town, they would often be given something like a small pillowcase, or you might think of like a plastic grocery bag. They were given this small bag in which they could take a few possessions into the gulag. And you can imagine, well, I guess we can imagine, the stress, the pressure, the intensity of what that might have been like, and just feeling these are my, like my last little possessions. And as you can imagine, often they were stolen. Or if they were disposable, they'd be used up or the guards would take them. And countless times we see in journals of these people that when the day come that their bag was empty and it was gone, time after time after time in their journals they say, I finally felt free. That when all the losses were gone, I didn't have this clinging, fearful, defensive, desire-driven thing that wasn't anything at all like freedom. My stuff didn't bring me freedom. It actually bound myself to it in something that was the exact opposite of freedom. But when it was all a loss, I finally was free. So this is something what Paul's getting at in verse eight when he says, what's more, I consider, there's that word again, everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whose sake I have lost all things. Now we, spend, we need to spend a moment on that word knowing. This is not an intellectual knowing, but this again is probably almost, I would say undoubtedly, Paul referring to his um, conversion. Remember Paul's conversion? He's walking on the road to Damascus. Suddenly this loud voice speaks out of the heavens. It's so startling that Paul falls to the ground. He's stricken blind. He hears the, the voice of God Almighty. And when Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of now knowing Christ, this is what he's thinking about. It, of course, includes intellect. It includes memory. But it's something more like the knowledge of being loved and chosen. For Paul, it's something like, now I know the purpose of a relationship with God. And this is now making meaning of my whole life. Where before his life was shriveled to mere keeping of the law, there was no purpose or telos, no end associated with the keeping of the law. And that leads to this increasingly shriveled up religious life. Certainly you've had friends or family member who have been on that trek where in trying to keep Christian rules or churchly rules, however they might be defined at any given time period in history, it actually makes them into worse sorts of human beings because there's no telos attached to it. There's no purpose or meaning attached to it. And Paul at his conversion is saying, suddenly I see now, I know what I could have never known before. And that's why I consider all the rest of this stuff garbage. It's that I might look at your text again, verse eight, that I might gain Christ. And just hearing that, Paul's saying something like, this is the priority of my life. That membership in the Messiah, as I said earlier, knowing that this is how God is fulfilling the promises to Israel, that this is how God is uh, revealing his intention for humanity. Paul's saying everything else besides that is lost to me and I'm now giving myself to that. Verse nine, he says, I'm doing this so that I can be found in him. This is a classic Pauline Greek construction. It's all over his letters being in Christ. Had you, you know, saw Paul this morning over at Triangle Square, he probably wouldn't have said to you, are you born again? And very unlikely he would have said to you something like, are you saved? But he may have said, as he does through all of his letters, are you in Christ? Christ is the Messiah. Are you in the Messiah? Are you in the fulfillment of all that God intended for humanity? Jesus is humanity as God intended. Jesus is Israel as in God intended. He is the fulfillment of all that. Are you in that? I mean, you might think of it as a parade or if you want to think of it more ontologically or something, in a being or something. But the whole thing is, are you in this? Is this what, is this what defines your life? Is this what makes meaning for you? I had a thought for a, last night for a book I'm working on and had to get up and write it down. This was the thought. Where now is coherence? For 15 or 20 years, because of postmodernism, we've been wondering where now is authority? I think it's more interesting to ask, where now is coherence? What can make this ever disparate, fractured life have any sort of coherence? What could give economic coherence? What could give sexual coherence? What could give political coherence? What could give religious coherence? What could give relational coherence? Where now is coherence? Where is there any idea around which all the aspects of your life can cohere? And for Paul, I'm in Christ. I'm in the Jesus movement. I'm in the Messiah movement. I, I'm in this thing in which God is bringing all of human history to its intended fulfillment in Jesus. I want to be found in him. Through faith in Christ, as I say, putting my confidence in him, being in alignment with what God's doing, 
having the righteousness, he says, that comes from God. And that, that word righteousness, just again, best not to think of it in religious legalistic terms, but to think of it as fulfilling that to which God had called Israel to be his agents, to heal creation, and to bring justice for God's world. This is Paul's imagination. This is the movement I'm standing in. So verse 10 again, I want to know Christ. And again, I, I just see him thinking of this like personal relationship of Jesus appearing to him on the road and initiating in Paul. I, I see this encounter on the road to Damascus as like a spark that initiated in Paul a moral and spiritual union with Christ. And this is why he's always calling others to the same. To be in Christ is to have this moral and spiritual union. And then he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That is to say, man, we know that Jesus is the Messiah because God loosed his power on the earth through the resurrection. And this divine power that's been loosed upon the world, Paul's simply saying, I want that to sustain me. I want my life to be one in which the power of the living Christ is at work in me. And then I think, again, thinking back to the last chapter of Christ and his model, Paul says, and I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. And in that sense, Paul is simply a follower of Jesus, if thinking of our gospel reading this morning, where Jesus is troubled and sorrowful, seeing the suffering that's before him, hoping that it could somehow pass, but knowing that it can't. And at the end of the day, saying, thy will be done. So now if you think of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, a, a chapter or two later, you know that, uh, or in the same chapter, I think, God says to this man, Ananias, to go talk to Paul. Remember that? And he says, go tell Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Not go tell Paul that you're going to be on the cover of Time magazine. Not go tell Paul you're going to have best-selling books. Uh, not tell Paul, you know, blah, 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 that kind of sort of religious celebrity. But go tell Paul how much he's going to suffer in my name. He actually is going to participate in my sufferings. He is going to fulfill the sufferings that it takes to bring healing to humanity. See, this isn't suffering, sorry for the big word, soteriologically. This isn't about salvation. This isn't about going to heaven when you die. Jesus did all that suffering. This isn't that. This is the suffering that it takes to bring justice and healing and wholeness to the world. That always costs people something. And this is what Paul is seeing himself doing. And this is why he says things like Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or maybe now, having heard this passage, you can think a little differently about this famous verse in Galatians 6, where Paul said, May I never boast except in the cross of Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, if you get your head a little bit around a Pauline worldview this morning, and you can hear him saying that. I want to know Christ. I want to be in him. And my boasting is no longer in my pedigree. It's no longer in my religious purity. I don't want to boast in anything except for the cross of Christ. Again, Christ, the Messiah, this Messiah movement. And through this Messiah movement, the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. So in Paul's phrase, I want to become like him, we discover that spiritual formation is not a recent trend or fad. The Greek word is where we get the word morph to be morphed. And so morphing into Christ-likeness has always been core to Christian spirituality. And Paul knows that this morphing calls for a complete identification and union with Christ, 
that re results in a total revaluation of everything. It leads to a renunciation of and death to everything that's misaligned with Christ. And it results in a new foundation for life, which is solely built and rooted on Christ. And then verse 11, this is where it gets sort of breathless now. And he just, I almost picture Paul Kent dictated to write it fast enough, where I want somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that he doubts that he will, he just knows that, man, the only path to that is through this life of suffering that I've been marked out for. And so you can just hear him somehow, I'm just like praying and working towards that I'll get through this. And I know that as I get through this, as I share in the ongoing life of Christ, which includes suffering, that the end of it will be resurrection from the dead. And then he says, and you know, this can be taken as a, just a statement of humility, but it's, it could also be a statement against some of the religious people of his day that we wouldn't necessarily understand. But Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this. He might've meant that against the super spiritual, but we can't know for sure. So not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, that is to say the perfection of humanity that's in the resurrection. He's saying something like, I know I live in the tension of what's already here but is yet to come. And I think this is important because knowing that you haven't arrived and seeing a vision for growth, I don't care how long you've been following Christ. I mean, I have for 42 years. And there's never been a time that I can recall when I've not been thinking, studying, trying, for 42 years, teaching, I've been teaching, I've been doing this for 42 years since I was 19 years old. And I can put my hand over my heart this morning and say, I am more captivated by Jesus today than I've ever been. I've never known a time in our life, in my lifetime, where if we could somehow lift up the person and work of Christ, his stunning beauty, his wisdom, his humility, his cosmic leadership, his power and essential goodness might be, for anybody who wanted it to be, where now is coherence? In Christ, I would want to say. And certainly it remains my goal, my daily struggle for the aspects of my life to cohere in, through, and around him. So I think it's very important, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, that you have a sense that you haven't arrived. I mean, if nothing else, this will produce in you humility. And that humility is likely to produce a kind of generosity that I think the world who hates the church now needs to experience from us. I don't mean a weakness. I don't mean a undifferentiated thoughts. I mean generosity, space-making for those who might think differently not from religious motives having to suck all the oxygen out of every conversation, but to genuinely listen, to be curious, unafraid and curious, not thrown off by somebody else's weird little thought, if you count it weird and little. And so Paul says, this is what I, I haven't arrived, and so therefore the last part of verse 12, I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Again, I think Paul's picturing the road to Damascus. And thinking something like, I want to make the purposes of Christ announce at my conversion my own possession. I think this was Paul's passionate longing. It was to grasp and hold firmly to that for which Christ had grasped him. 
And so again, you have a statement of humility, but I know I haven't taken hold of it. But one thing I do, you might think of this as like Paul's life motto. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind, whether it's pride or patterns of sinfulness or spiritual despair, I forget it and I strain. And, and the, the, the picture you should see here is um, like the Olympics when sprinters, you know, are straining towards the finish line, you know, chin and chest and everything, just to get something across that finish line, that, that last little straining they do. That, that's, this is, that's the Greek term here. I'm straining towards what's ahead. This is a relentless centering of all Paul's energies and interests in the utmost effort to follow Jesus. He uses another strong term, verse 14, I'm pressing on. The Greek there is I'm chasing after. I'm chasing after the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I think we can see Paul this morning maybe thinking something like this. King Jesus has taken hold of me, and now the purpose of my life is to take hold of him and his gospel of the kingdom. And this is now the purpose of my life. So, you know, normally, if you're normally here at Holy Trinity, after a message, we have a time of silence to think with the Spirit, pray with the Spirit about what's happening. In Advent, we moved away from that a little bit. You remember, we prayed for each other during Advent. And in Epiphany, I've been sort of, in quotes, uh, calling this time an altar call. Not that I'm going to ask you to raise your hand or, or come forward, but in the spirit of what we think of making a decision that the revelation, the epiphany, is no longer let, let to be just benign or neutral. But in the same way, the revelation of Christ to Paul on the road to Damascus, as we hear in Paul's heart a revelation of Christ today, it always calls for a decision. And so what this morning might you consider? Again, think of that word from last week, because Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What do you consider loss? What for you would be true gain? Can you find in yourself this morning, I want to know Christ? Can you find in yourself this morning, I want to be found in him? So if I were standing before you like an evangelist this morning doing an altar call, I might say something like this. Are you risking it all on God and his kingdom? Is the revelation of God in Christ of surpassing worth to you? Is the priority of your life to know Christ and to take hold of that for which he took hold of you?